Well, once again, uh, we had an inspiring, uh, moving trip to Scotland and England. So thank you for sending Bill and Sam and Rob and Jeremy and Alan and me. And uh, so learning about those church planting efforts from our sister denominations and seeing it in practice on, on the ground was really motivating, inspiring. There's this certain focus and commitment and sacrifice and vision that stands out in sharp relief given how secular and unbelieving uh, their cultures are. In some cities, you know, estimates being 0.4% would be believers. Um, and yet how like fervent and expectant uh, these leaders in their churches are to make sacrifices, to be committed, to focused, to have a vision for planting new churches in these regions. And, you know, one of the effects on us, I think, was, you know, uh, be alert, make, make use of what God has given you to make Jesus known. We have big dreams because we have a big Savior. But at the same time, and they would readily affirm this, big, noble, earth-transforming plans and dreams must be undergirded by small, unseen, unheralded faithfulness of just simple walking with Christ, acts of love because of Christ, a real genuine growth in the Lord together. Went on a tour in London and we're sitting in John Newton's church in St. Mary's and the guy leading the tour just looked at us and said, you know, this guy, so much happened in his ministry. It turned England upside down really. And yet you look at this church, only 120 people worshiped here. Like it's a small church in a big city. And yet out of that small church, so much happened. William Carey came under his ministry, the father of the missionary movement. Henry Martin, much noted missionary to India, came under his ministry. William Wilberforce, who devoted his life to abolishing the slave trade as a parliamentarian for 40 plus years was under his ministry. But though those big things happened, Newton's life was one of small faithfulness. And so one of the illustrations was that he and his wife, Mary, they adopted two orphaned nieces, Betsy and Elizabeth, and at some point when Betsy is probably in middle school, Elizabeth and Mary, John's wife, they die. And it's just John and his daughter, Betsy. And she has an emotional breakdown, a crisis of faith, and it, and it gets really severe to where she gets committed because she was viewed as insane and insanity wasn't just a condition, it was a crime. And it just so happened that Bedlam, that hospital, was located really close to John's house. And she got committed there, which is this in inhumane facility for people that were classified as insane. 
So, so Betsy has to go there, and he doesn't know for how long. But every day, rain, sleet, or snow, whatever the temperature in John Newton's regular schedule, it was that he would walk over to Bedlam, and he knew where her room was. He couldn't see her, but he knew where her room was, and he would ra- wave by her window until a handkerchief would come out the window saying she was okay. And every day he did that. In addition to all the other things he did in all his big ministry, it was that small act of love and empathy and care for his daughter. Well, this passage goes there. It goes to those unseen things of what makes a community work, like how the gospel works out in a community. We desire that that the gospel would extend from sea to sea and shore to shore, and yet we, we see here the hard work that happens as the gospel begins to be lived out among a bunch of sinners. So Luke 17 one through 10, and I titled it The Grind of Discipleship because there's nothing flashy about this passage. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this good word endures forever and it's written with you in mind also. And I just want you to see that it's very crucial we see that Jesus is talking to his disciples. That's where his focus is and it's very important for us to note that. It's like what Sinclair Ferguson so well says. He says, we could not make for a more serious mistake spiritually than to assume what Jesus says to disciples. He simply speaks to everyone. This is not his gospel message. This is spoken 
to disciples. It's not do this to become a Christian and be saved. Jesus is already speaking to those who have placed their faith in him, who have entered a relationship with him, who have been justified by faith alone in Christ alone, or experiencing the power of Jesus, that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves wretches like me. We once were lost, but now we're found blind, but now we're see. He's, he's, he's speaking to disciples who know grace. Alan and I were talking to a guy on the train, this young guy, and uh, he raised in the Anglican church in a boarding school, and he, he was very insightful about what the climate was like in England and what the view of Christianity was. And over and over again, he said that people really just view it as a, a code to follow, uh, uh, steps for a moral life and a productive life. And we kept trying to move him to see that it's, you know, the Bible isn't about a moral record, the Bible is about a, a redeemer, but it was so hard for him to get there. Um, Jesus is already speaking to disciples, those that know the gospel. And yet, those that know the gospel, this, this grace of God so influences our lives that we begin to reflect who Jesus is. So Dr. Kelly wrote, it's one of my favorite quotes. He says, the Christian ministry's effectiveness is that the gospel becomes translated into flesh and blood and that has a way of beginning to transform an entire society. And so what he's saying is it's almost like the gospel's a different language to our world. Like we're just in the heads or tails what to do with it. There would be a redeemer who would take our sins away that I'm so bankrupt personally that I can't make myself better and I have to have a redeemer to cover my sin and give me his righteousness. It's like a different language until the Christian community translates that grace in flesh and blood in the way we live with one another and in that way pointing the world to Christ. Uh, we took a tour of um, Aldersgate where, you know, John Wesley had his meeting. And if you recall John Wesley's testimony, he was a missionary to, to Georgia. He came over to the States and he preached for two years in a Church of England church telling them, do this and God will be pleased with you and God will save you. God will redeem you. If, you. if you follow these rules, God will accept you. And it broke him and, and crushed his congregation. He returned in total frustration and dismay. But on Aldersgate, there's this sculpture that's a page out of his journal dated, I think it's May the 24th, a Wednesday, 1739, in which he sings Psalm 130 in a church service, the one we had as our call to worship about God redeeming us of all of our iniquities. But then he goes to a study group and this humble guy takes out Luther's commentary to the Romans 
and he just reads it, that the just live by faith, that it's not our moral record, it's a gift of righteousness that we receive as a, as a gift of grace. And that's when he says, my heart was strangely warmed and everything changes such that 40 years later, 50 years later, when he dies at 1791, even secular historians would say he's the most influential, powerful person in all of England because the gospel had changed his heart and it moved out into their society. This is what our passage is getting at today for our community. And so it says three things. One, the Christian community, we deal with our sin. Two, it says, um, we direct our faith. And three, we do our duty. So first, we deal with our sin. In 17.1, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, there, there's two areas of sin, before and after. And what he says in the first is, we don't cause each other to sin. Like we're a community that doesn't tear each other down. We're not destructive to each other. I believe the Christian counselors, when they say that nothing causes me to sin, that many things can be the occasion for my sin, and yet if we look at various scenarios in our lives and the lives of others, we would say it's almost as if this scenario caused sin. And just notice the realism that Jesus speaks of here. Temptations to sin are sure to come. It's, it's inevitable. And so the question for us is, are we prepared for it and ready for it? Temptations to sin are sure to come. And so the word literally is scandalon, it's stumbling block. It's things that cause one to stumble, that cause one to sin. It can also be used as the bait stick trap, the thing that allures and uh, entices and entraps. Those sorts of things are, are bound to come. And it's crucial that we recognize that. And, and why are those things bound to come? Well, you know, we live in a fallen world. We live among sinful people. We have our own rebellious, deceitful hearts. Sin just tends to spread. Uh, sin likes company. One that's falling into sin wants more to join him or her. It's bound to come. Uh, Jeff Thomas, the Welch preacher, says, I want, when he was preaching on this passage, he says, I want you to write down a list of things that cause you to sin. And then he says, Parents, please help your children. And he writes a top 10 list. Such wisdom there in your own reflections on, okay, what are those steps when I get in trouble that I can almost predict what's about to take place? What are they for me? And, and can I prepare myself in advance for that? Temptations to sin are bound to come. What are the scenarios for you? Well, if they're going to come, then you know, one of the reactions could be that we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, they're bound to come, so what's the use of dealing with it? And Jesus says no, because he joins realism and responsibility. The fact they're bound to come doesn't cause us to 
wash our hands towards them, but to recognize our responsibility in this. And first, it's something we don't do. It's the negative. Like, we, we don't become occasions for sin. He says, woe to the one through whom they come. And that word woe is, is really strong. It's an expression of pity for a person under God's judgment. And so we say, woe to a culture and a society, business and entertainment and persons that serve as stumbling blocks to turn people away from Christ. Woe to them, woe. It's concern and pity for them as they are liable to divine judgment. And it's intensified in verse two when Jesus says it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck, cast into the sea, than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Like it would be better to suffer a a violent death than to cause a little one to sin, to, to, to move away from Christ ultimately. And so is he talking about a, a child in the church? Maybe, is he talking about all disciples? Sometimes he speaks about all disciples this way, probably. What I especially think he's talking about is those new, weak disciples that are flocking to Jesus, the tax collectors and sinners that are finding in Jesus hope and forgiveness for their burden of guilt and shame. And the Pharisees were serving as stumbling blocks in the way they lived and the way they viewed them and what they were teaching. And Jesus was saying, look, you don't be stumbling blocks to these that are coming to me for grace. But the other thing we have to recognize is that, you know, it's not just the world that can serve as stumbling blocks to the little ones, the weak ones. This is graphic imagery like plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. Jesus is trying to get our attention in the way our own sin bumps against other people and how we can be a discouragement to each other's walk with him. So, you know, honestly, I have to say that I have been a stumbling block in ways to my own family. They have to deal with my sin or my inattentiveness or my lack of proactivity in loving them. What are the ways in which we may be stumbling blocks in our Christian community? We're a a group that doesn't cause others to sin. We're a group that keeps people from sinning. Well, the second area is after the sin. That's the before the sin. What happens after the sin? We don't hold grudges. We don't cause people to sin and then we don't hold grudges is the second area. And Spurgeon, you know, Spurgeon battled gout for years and gout is very painful. So one day a friend came to him and his friend had to deal with rheumatism. And so his friend started telling Spurgeon that rheumatism is more painful than gout. So Spurgeon looked at him and says, well, I'll tell you the difference between rheumatism and gout. Put your finger into a vice and turn it until you can't stand the pain anymore. That's rheumatism. Now, give that vice three more turns and that's gout. 
And Spurgeon applied that scenario to verses three and four. He said two things about dealing with sin after it's already been committed. We've got to confront the sinner and we've got to forgive the sinner. Confronting a sinner is rheumatism and forgiving a sinner is gout. It's just hard work. And so Keller in his book on forgive is really good here. And the idea is that someone's sinning against you. So you think of those scenarios in your life when you've been sinned against. And you see, our culture doesn't really know what to do about forgiveness. And we're not a forgiving culture. We're all about what we would call seeking justice. We ghost people, insult people, cancel people, really take revenge on people. At the same time, our culture knows that you have to forgive in order to a culture to exist and, and survive. The issue is only a disciple has resources to forgive because the whole message of scripture is that God forgave in the work of his son and therefore enables us to forgive. C.S. Lewis says it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. So the crucial thing is that Jesus is teaching disciples, those who have experienced their own forgiveness. And what he says is, when somebody has sinned against you, first recognize, then rebuke, then remit. So recognize, pay attention to yourselves. It's interesting, somebody sins against me, And I'm supposed to pay attention to me. (laughs) The issue is when somebody sins against you, you pay a lot of attention to get towards the other person. Think about your homes, your family life. Somebody sins against you, all of a sudden, everything about your mentality is on the other person and their offense. So Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. Because we easily begin to view that other person as one-dimensional, as demonizing them for their faults. They're not complex. They're not multifaceted. There aren't mitigating circumstances. They're just, they just do this. That's what they're like. And so you recognize, notice he calls them a brother, a brother or sister, like we're in the same family. We're more alike than different. We're both sinners. I need forgiveness too. There's a self-awareness and humility here that we must cultivate right off the bat. Pay attention to yourself. Profound statement. And so in the Christian community, we're thinking, now how does the grace of the gospel bend outward to one another? Well, we pay attention to ourselves when we've been sinned against. And then he says, you rebuke. And no Southerner likes to rebuke. Uh, we confront well. And it's very hard to confront well Because the goal of that confrontation in sin is not getting even. The goal is to help that person turn to Christ. And the goal is to seek reconciliation. And so we have this tension in Scripture between 1 Peter 4, 8, that love covers a multitude of sins, which has to happen in a group of sinners. And yet sometimes the fault is such that it has to be discussed And at that point, we do loving confrontation with one another. And it's rheumatism, it's hard, it's painful. 
Everything about us wants to withdraw and sever the relationship and enter into a kind of formality. But we're trying to move towards repentance and reconciliation and relationship. And then remit. And that's the heart of forgiveness. It's that word that means to cancel the debt. To cancel the debt, to to wash it clean. And so what we're saying when we forgive is that I'm refusing to make the person who owes me pay in whatever way I do that. And you know your ways that you tend to do that, whether it's just refusing to really open up to that person, whether it's stewing on certain thoughts about that person, withdrawing relationship or tearing down that person. You refuse to make the offender pay the offense. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our debts because an offense is a debt. It's a robbery. You've robbed something from me and I want you to pay it back. But Jesus says we forgive and it has to be a disciple because you don't have the resources to do that except that you know that your debt is nothing in comparison to the debt God forgave you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice seven times in a day, it's this constant thing that's going on. It's perpetual forgiveness that is realism in the body of Christ. And so the first point in this community life together is that we deal with our sin. We don't cause each other to sin and then we don't hold grudges when we have sinned. And then the second point, just much more brief, is that we direct our faith. And so before this rheumatism and gout, confronting well, forgiving well, the disciples look at Jesus and say, increase our faith. And so we wonder in this section, are these just disconnected sayings that Luke grouped together here because he wanted to preserve them? But there's a perfect logic for why he would use these statements. The fact that Jesus has given them this teaching, this forgiveness and confrontation means these disciples are looking at this saying, nobody can do this, increase our faith. And you just gotta love it that they're taking Jesus seriously. And the disciples look at Jesus and say, if that's how the discipling community is to live, if that's how we're to reflect God's grace in Christ, if it's this hard to do, if I'm supposed to do this because I'm your apostle, meaning you're representative towards others, and I feel so weak and insufficient in this, you've got to augment and intensify my faith for me to live like this. And Jesus looks at them and says, look, if you've got faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. And so the mustard seed was renowned for being the smallest seed in the garden. And so it became symbolic and figurative for something very tiny. A mulberry tree was also became to be a figure for something intractable, impregnable, different, difficult, because its root system was so developed, so extensive that the rabbi said a mulberry tree could exist for 600 years and not move. And so Jesus is saying God can do a whole lot with a very little. 
Jesus says, very small faith can overcome huge obstacles. The commentator Nolan says it this way, it's not the increase of faith that's needed, but the exercise of faith, even if it's infinitesimal. It's not the feeling, the emotion, the strength of faith. It's not the intensity of your faith, but it's its use, its practice, it's putting it to work and God using it. And, and the reason is because it goes even deeper because again, Jesus is talking to disciples. It's not the feeling of your faith, it's a focus of your faith. It's not the depth, but the direction. It's the object of your faith. We, faith is powerful not because of its intensity, because of its object. Weak faith joins you to Jesus, who's a big savior. It's like both Alan and me entered a plane to come back to the US. Alan loves flying and I don't like flying. Both of us had faith and both of us arrived. It just doesn't matter the intensity of the faith, even more so with respect to our faith in Christ. God can do a whole lot with very little because the object of our faith. And finally, we just do our duty as God's people. And so is there any connection between this parable and what's gone before? Well, the question is, on this parable of the unworthy servant, um, if, if we direct our faith to Jesus, if, if King Jesus starts moving in and his power starts uprooting and planting all sorts of things, our worst obstacles being overcome, then if we start seeing this kind of success and effectiveness, then what will naturally happen in our lives is we'll become prideful and arrogant and compare ourselves to others. And we're gonna start thinking that we have some kind of claim on God or we've obligated God or we've put God in our debt, that we deserve some kind of special recognition and attention and the Christian community suffers. And so, this passage builds on the prior two. And it's such a stirring passage, really, because the Pharisees approach life this way. If I do certain things, and God's obligated to give me a different treatment. If I do this for you, then you'll do that for me. If, if our view of God is like that, then we actually lose the gospel because the gospel is an announcement of a work accomplished. It's not advice for getting God to reward us. And so this parable is that it comes from daily life. Like everybody knew about this. There were slave servants. And Jesus says, what master, if he has a servant, and he worked in the fields all day, when he came in from the fields, would thank him and start serving him. That's just not how it were done. What happens after the servant comes in the house is that he just has different work. He cleans himself up and begins serving the master. The text actually says he dresses properly. And you can see why it's the English Standard Version because they like that word proper so much. Even McDonald's had a proper breakfast, they said about McDonald's. But it's a powerful statement to us. Uh, 
why would a slave and a servant um, behave like this? And a slave or a servant comes in from working and just continues to serve the master because he's owned, he's bought. So he did what he was told to do. He didn't expect thanks or reward. He didn't look for preferential treatment. He didn't negotiate or barter for more pay. He did what he was told to do. That was his duty. And so Jesus really gives the baseline for a disciple that you and I were, were lost and enslaved. We were destitute in sin. And, and God bought us back with great cost. He redeemed us by the blood of the lamb. We're now God's slaves. We're God's servants. That's baseline. And we do what we're told. We don't expect thanks. We don't expect reward. We don't look for preferential treatment. We don't negotiate or barter with God. We don't think our obedience puts God in our debt. And therefore, we don't think that our gifts are our own. We don't compare ourselves with the service of others. We just do what God lays before us. God's tasks are his prerogatives. His gifts are divinely given by him. If all is of grace, then he can ask us to do anything. There's no system of merit for preferential treatment. And really, when you think of what Jesus is doing here, he's inculcating humility in the people of God to trust God for what he gives us and just do what he requires of us. But we also get to look like Christ in this. Because Christ said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's just what Christ did. But even more, even though this is baseline motivation for the people of God, to strip us of that self-satisfied pride, really, our motivation is much deeper than this, even. Because even in Luke 12, Jesus gave a similar parable when he said, look, if you stay alert as servants of God, when I come back, I am gonna dress myself for service. And I'm gonna put you at the table and let you recline, and I'm going to serve you. But you put those two together, on the one hand we say, we're just unworthy servants, we don't deserve that. I know me, I don't deserve that. But the other one says, grace upon grace, that in addition to redeeming me and making me his own, he lavishes grace on us to give us what we never would have a claim on him for. And so the motivation goes from the baseline here to even more abounding in the fact that he rewards us for the good we do. And the gospel does that in the believing community. Because not only are we servants, but we're also adopted sons and daughters. And he treats us as his cherished family. And so the grind of discipleship in this passage that makes the church live out or reflect this gospel grace is that we as a people, we deal with our sin. We as a people, we direct our faith to Christ. And we as a people, we just do our duty as God has charged us to because we've been bought by the blood of Christ. 
Amen. Let's stand.